I'm grateful that we are a church that has multiple worship services. It gives me as a preacher a chance to get to engage with texts in different ways and experience preaching in different formats. And so this week for our lectionary selection, I give thanks because it is a text that convicts, is a text that compels, and it's not one that I often pick if given the option, but I'm glad that the lectionary offers it to us this morning. Will you pray with me as we begin? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. May the words of my mouth continue to be used for us to receive your word. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And all God's people said? Oh, we've got a little more energy than that this morning. All God's people said? That is a way of us affirming together that we agree with what was just prayed or read or heard. I, I think we're a congregation with lots of energy and lots of enthusiasm. So I love to hear it with that gusto, with that vigor. Thanks to a time period called the Enlightenment, um, those of us in the Western world have a very specific way of understanding reality. During the Enlightenment, or also known as the Age of Reason, or the rise of science, everything in the world began being viewed through the lens of objectivity. Things that used to be mysterious are now observable, able to be measured and analyzed. For example, rain no longer falls from an opening in the dome in the sky from which water resides above us. We now understand how water condenses and precipitates and comes back down to the earth in the form of rain and snow and sleet. Birds do not just show up sporadically throughout the year, but rather they are migrating with the changing temperatures and we can understand that. All the way we understand mental illness is no longer as symptoms caused by unknown spiritual forces, but diagnosable diseases that affect millions of people. These are just a few of the things that the reasoning and the rationality of the Enlightenment worldview has helped us understand. But perhaps one of the most impactful offerings from this time period is our propensity for categorization, for classification, and for labeling. We are now a people very prone to be sure we understand what is what and how it fits into its proper place. We have hundreds of various systems for classifying things, like the taxonomic rank. Do you remember that from your ninth grade biology class? Do we have any people in biology here? If so, I bet you could help us out. You've got the domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. How many of you think I still remember that from ninth grade? How many of you think I Googled that last night? We categorize our food now as no longer just meat and bread. There's macronutrients of proteins and carbohydrates and fats. There's micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. The human brain is no longer just the brain. It's the cerebellum, the brainstem, the hippocampus, the pituitary gland. There's so much more that we now understand through observation and analysis, classification. As a people group, we've become very good at observing things, identifying what they are and where they fit into the proper world order. We have a great concern about these observable realities, so much so that almost everything in life now fits into simple dichotomies. 
Things are either right or wrong. They're light or dark. They're black or white. Night or day, asleep or awake. And there's Christian and non-Christian. And all this sounds perfectly normal because, as I said, we live in a world shaped by these enlightenment lenses. But it doesn't take much to realize the flaws in this enlightenment-inspired worldview. If we press this, pers- this propensity to classify and dichotomize, we would realize that there are plenty of things that do not hold up to the rigidity of modern ways of defining Humanity and life is much messier and much more complicated than simple objectivity. There is an actual time between night and day. It's called twilight. There are plenty of colors between black and white on the Roy G. Biv spectrum. I'm getting really sciencey today, pulling back all the knowledge I can remember from those glasses. Not to mention that there's a world full of gray, is there not? And I would contend that many people in this world act more like Christians than some of us who claim to be Christ followers. Classifications and labeling have their place. They're all well and good, but they cannot fully capture the essence of reality, particularly these dichotomies as they pertain to humanity. The reason I know this to be true is our text today from the Gospel of Luke shows us a very human Jesus defying our need to define him as one thing. He's not just one role. This gospel text often referred to as Sermon on the Plain because it says at the very beginning that Jesus came onto a level place. This is juxtaposed against Matthew's Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is personified as this new Moses who brings down the Ten Commandments is giving the word of the Lord from the mountain. Luke's rendition of this experience has Jesus standing on a level plane in order to personify the truth of Jesus' humility and the preferential option he has for those of lowly state. Here, though, the thing I find most compelling about this text is that Jesus is both fully exemplifying his role as priest and his role as prophet. Jesus is both priest as much as he is prophet. You see, I really wanted to preach from the Jeremiah passage this morning as I was journeying through the lectionary. I find it so compelling. It's a fascinating text. But as I was reading through the lectionary and then I was reading my subsequent commentary series called Feasting on the Word, the way in which the editors of this book placed this text on the page made it come alive for me. The Holy Spirit spoke through just the visualization of this scripture. You see, on the left-hand side, we had the first verses of these Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed are those. And on the right-hand side of the page, we had these woes. Woe unto you, woe unto you. I found the whole sermon right there in this visual representation of the word. So what does it mean for Jesus to be priest? That Jesus occupies the role of priest, It means that he's fulfilling the role that we in a modern context assume to our clergy. I do not mean specifically that Jesus is the religious authority enacting weekly rites and ceremonies, but rather the priest calling to comfort and shepherd the people. Today in Protestantism, we tend to refer to those who are traditionally called priests as pastors. 
That's in part because the early reformers wanted to distance themselves from our Catholic origins. But also because we as Protestants, we we tend to emphasize the shepherd-like qualities of clergy. Sometimes over the parts of the office imbued with religious tradition. In my mind, the term priest and pastor should be seen interchangeably as it relates to Jesus. This pastoral presence who is there to comfort the people. Jesus, as priest, cares for those in his flock. He visits the sick. He comforts the afflicted. He feeds the hungry. This is how Christ modeled for us what it means to be caretakers of the vulnerable, what it means to be shepherds for the people. This reality is made plain when you hear his words, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Rejoice in the day when they say they hate you, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. If you were on the fringes of society, if you were poor, if you were hungry, if you were weeping, if people hated you, and you heard this great figure give you these words, there would be surely be comfort. There would be affirmation. Someone would have told you that you matter, and that would be meaningful. Jesus is comforting those who are most vulnerable, who are broken. And yet, in the very same breath that Jesus comforts the afflicted, he also afflicts the comfortable. Not a verse separates the role in which Jesus plays as priest and the one in which he plays as prophet. He said to that same crowd, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing, for you will mourn and you will weep. Woe to you when all speak well, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophet was understood to be the mouthpiece of God, the one that communicated the truths and the reality of the divine to the people on earth. And Jesus here is no less prophet than those who books were written about that came before him. He's offering a warning to any of those who would hear these words and recognize them as true. He speaks to the heart of the persons with with privilege and says to those, the privilege you desire and yearn for will be the very thing that leads to your own undoing. These words sting. They carry weight. They are convicting. They disturb that which we deem as normal if that norm does not reflect the kingdom of God. And so the question for us today is, how do we understand these texts and what they mean for our own lives? This is the living word of God, and so it is not just recording history, but is compelling us today. I think in the most basic of ways, it means the exact same thing to us that it meant to those hearers 2,000 years ago. It means that if you are vulnerable, if you are broken, if you are hurting, that there is a God who cares and a Christ who comforts. When I think of these words, I think if if you are hungry now, know that there is a reality in which you will be fed. If you are weeping, you will laugh. I think of grieving parents who have lost a child. I think of grieving children who have lost a parent. 
I think of spouses who sit by the side of their loved ones with great health problems. I think of those who stay at our church and we host family promise. I think of all of those who come in and through the society of St. Stephen's. I think of the children that just left for children's church and how Christ said, unto these belongs the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are most vulnerable. Blessed Blessed are those who are in greatest need. And Christ as priest seeks to provide comfort to you who are broken. And in the same way, Christ as prophet seeks to compel those of us who are rich. Woe unto us, those of us who are hungry or who are full, for we will now one day be hungry. Woe to those of us who are laughing, for one day we will weep. Woe to us whom the world loves, for one day soon all the castles that we've made of sand will come crashing down around us. Jesus, as the prophet, speaks on behalf of God to make it known to humanity that we are not as awesome as we might think that we are. The thing in which these woes have in common, I don't think that they were haphazardly just selected and put together, but each of them represents a type of idolatry. Each of them makes ourselves God instead of God. These woes say to us, if you think that you are full because you provided yourself with food, you are actually hungry. If you think you are rich because you found salvation in your wealth, you have actually nothing and woe unto you. If you think you're happy because everyone tells you how great you are, yet you have no humility, then woe unto you. We are the ones who receive these woes, who need Christ the most because we don't even realize that we need Christ. We have set ourselves up as false prophets, made idolatrous idols of ourselves. So to land this discussion on Luke chapter 6, I would like to point out that we too fall into a false dichotomy even with this conversation. It seems like God cares for those who are broken and does not care for those who are privileged. But that is not what I hear when I hear these woes and when I hear these blessings. My parents did not show love to me and my sister and instruct us in the same ways. My sister is a saint. She has always been a saint. She and my wife, if we are doing canonization of Protestants, will be saintly one day. And if there's a line in heaven, they are both in the front. But my sister has often been shy and timid She at times lacked self-confidence when she had so much to offer. And so my parents would speak to her with words of encouragement and affirmation. On the other hand, I have always had a very healthy ego integrity. Self-confidence has not been something people think that I lack. What I do lack is humility and the need to recognize that I'm not always the smartest person in the room, even though no matter how much I like to think I am. And so when my parents would help me realize the errors of my way and help me experience some humble pie, they did not do so because they didn't love me. They did so because they did. Those convicting words that were hard to hear are equally an expression of love as the comfort to the broken. 
The prophet Jesus, like the prophets of old, does not offer people warnings and woes because they've already been condemned, but rather because God's love of all people extends beyond a humanity marred by sin and idolatry. If God did not care about those who were receiving the woes, who should have been convicted, he would have just said nothing and left them all to their own devices, left us all to our own devices. But we should welcome the woes. We should welcome the conviction because it means that God still loves us. And this is something that we know to be true, that there's nothing in the heavens or on the earth, nothing that is created now or ever that could separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not powers or principalities, not false idols or decisions we've made, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so how do you hear these words of Christ? Are you broken? Are you weeping? Are you hungry? Do others hate you because you decide to follow the Lord? If so, know that there is a God a Jesus Christ who loves you. You are loved. And we as a church want to comfort you and be the expression of Christ's love in your life. If you are broken, there is a place for you. You are not alone. Or are you privileged and yet have not heard the conviction of Christ on our lives? If you find yourself comparing yourself to others and saying, compared to that person, I'm not privileged, then likely you are. That's where I find myself often, trying to justify my own means, my own decisions, my own idols. So I pray that if you are vulnerable, if you are broken, that you'll experience the priests, that you'll experience the comfort. And if you are comfortable, I pray that you are afflicted with discomfort. Not because I don't love you, but because I do. Will you pray with me? Lord, may we always recognize God and others despite where we find ourselves, and may we always recognize you in ourselves despite how we appear to others. Comfort those who are broken. Afflict those who are comfortable so that in all things we search for you now and always. Amen.